This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, and here at the Finding Holy Podcast, it is our aim to bring you great conversations, thoughtful ideas with leaders, activists, artists, professors, and pastors to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. I know 2020 has been a total ride for most of us. And so I wanted to begin season four talking about all of these things. We have been inundated with how do we respond to a global pandemic and an economic crisis? How do we respond to political polarization and racism and so many things that feel like they are not just ideas out there, but they are affecting our every moment and our waking hours. So join me for season four, Living Faithfully in an Upside Down World. And remember to stick around because at the end of every episode, not only will you get to hear my guest laundry routines, but you will also get to have one small step to take with you into your everyday holy life. My guest this week is D.L. Mayfield. She is a writer and activist who has spent over a decade working with refugee communities in the United States. Her work has been published in McSweeney's, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and lots of other places. She is also the author of Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and two children. We recorded this conversation before a lot of the Portland unrest, and you'll want to follow D.L. Mayfield online to get her own take on being a part of the Wall of Moms. But for now, here's our conversation about her most recent book, The Myth of the American Dream. All right, friends, I'm excited to introduce to you D.L. Mayfield. She's the author of the most recent book, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. I'm really excited that Danielle is here with us. So thanks for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ashley. I feel like we've been social media friends for a long time. This is our first time chatting. I know. It's so great. So, yeah. yes, I love it. Um, Danielle writes a lot about themes of place and neighborliness in kind of a different social environment um, in the north kind of suburbs of Portland. Um, and I'm in a kind of affluent Southern California suburb. It'll be a good conversation. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Tell us how your neighbors kind of flipped your world upside down. Yeah, this is like my conversion story. You know, yeah. Just, you and yeah. I have a pastor's kid who never did anything wrong. And so... Everybody had these really great conversion stories, and mine was just so boring. It's like, right. I'm a good kid. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do like the idea of, like, what in your life has caused you to change your life or right. you know, orient your life in a new direction. And my neighbors are definitely that. It all started for me when I was going to Bible college here in Portland uh, to be a missionary. I ended up volunteering with recently arrived refugees. Um, they were from Somalia, the Somali Bantu people. And just hung out with them, ended up moving in with them, and saw my city through their eyes. And it, you know, really opened my eyes to the fact that America is not 
chosen land for everybody. It's not mm-hmm. an easy place to live if you have certain barriers. So yeah, they open my eyes so much. Um, I would say just inequality, right? And injustice right. that was in my city um, and sort of invited me into this idea of like, what am I going to do here and now? Mm-hmm. I ended up deciding not to move overseas and be a missionary, but realized I found so much joy in living in my own city and interacting with communities um, who had, you know, been forced to move here through circumstances. So that's kind of where I've been in ever since is these neighborhoods that have really high populations of immig- immigrant and refugees. Mm-hmm. And I lived a little bit in Minneapolis, but um, have, you know, come back to Portland and, and living on the outskirts here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about gentrification and I love how you do, you, you say, um, you know, a lot of it looks like valuing or kind of giving lip service to justice, um, but still profiting off of unjust systems. And I think so much of what we're learning, for at least for many people who are Caucasian or in any sort of privileged position, we're kind of recently waking up to this idea that there can be kind of an individual relationship with race or place or, you know, any other kind of value system, economics, business. And then there's this kind of system that we don't usually think about, right? Um, Most of us who are kind of upwardly mobile, middle class, upper middle class, have this sense that, you know, we've earned what we have um, without actually realizing that there's a system that has helped us along, you know, a little shove in the, uh, into the direction of the American dream. Um, So, when you realize that, what do we do? I think it's such a big question. Um, you know, for me, my my specific place is really interesting. And, and what I love about you is you've really delved into where you live and sort of all the good and the bad and the ugly, you know, and mm-hmm. we just need to stop, uh, I think, being afraid of really digging into where we live and the history yeah. behind it. And yeah. so for me, Portland's such a fascinating place because Portland, I just think it's really progressive. Right. But it's not. I mean, and honestly, at this point in my life, progressive folks can sometimes even bother me more because they're so dead set that they're doing right things. And yet they're usually just profiting off of the same systems, right? right? right. That are fundamentally unequal. So I see that in Portland, you know, like a lot of cities, it's about mortgages and school choice. There's yeah. two places where um, no matter what you think your background is, you tend to be like, I need to make the best decision for me and my family. Yeah. And if you have the means, that means you would buy a house or you would try and get a house in the neighborhood with the best schools. And that fundamentally, you know, ends up congregating people in poverty in the same ne- neighborhoods. And then those neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right, they don't receive the same amount of resources for the schools. They maybe don't have parks. They don't have community centers. So that's like the situation I'm dealing with right now. So I think for me, writing this book, it really was an invitation for all of us to say, hey, you know what? I think these values of like individualism or pursuing affluence for myself, like I think these values are way stronger than we might even want to articulate. And I don't really think anybody's free from them. But uh, I think depending on, you know, your position of privilege or power in society, you do have a responsibility to be honest about Mm-hmm. where you are, mm-hmm. what your political, social, economic location is. And then if you're a Christian, you have the responsibility to say, now how do I use this to love my neighbors? Mm-hmm. And we're really good at being like, okay, here's how I can do this one nice thing for this one right. person or maybe engage in like a charity or something like that. So biblically, it's a much bigger holistic question of 
how do I create a world that is actually just? How do mm-hmm. we actually see people in our neighborhoods experience shalom, mm-hmm. you know, true flourishing? And, and the Bible is so obsessed with like, always talking about the foreigners, the orphans, the widow, the poor, because like, if they're flourishing, then you know God's dream is being achieved, mm-hmm. right? And if they're not, you know, we have a ways to go. And so yeah. I, and no matter where you live, right, you can find those places where flourishing is not happening. Mm-hmm. You can start to ask yourself, am I actually contributing to this inequality? How am I being asked to maybe change something mm-hmm. to do? And I bring up some really huge topics in the book, as mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So specifically, you know, school, school choice is a big one. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't mean to bring it up to like, make people feel shame, but it is a really interesting way to just start to say, okay, of course we know how to take care of our kids and do what's best for them. Yeah. How can we start to build up the muscles to actually start to look at all of our neighbor's children as a responsibility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because they're God's children, right? And, yeah. and those are the muscles I need help developing. Yeah. yeah. Actually, what's cool about my neighborhood is all these amazing people from these collectivist countries live here. And so, they're really awesome at, at mm-hmm. showing me a better way forward. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I really enjoyed about your book, it would be really easy <laughs> to be like super self-righteous, right? About even your own kind of life choices, right? Like, hey, we've moved to this neighborhood. We are intentionally living amongst, you know, these groups of people. And like, I'm angry at all of the other evangelicals or white people <laughs> that haven't made that choice. Um, and so one thing I really enjoyed about your book is the way in which you, you both see yourself, um, through a very humble lens about all the work that you still need to accomplish as well as just seeing, you know, there's problems on the right and the left, um, the ways in which we are not living out of the kingdom of God lens. So just thank you for that. Cause that's a hard line to tread. Yeah, I think for me, my story, and in my first book, Assimilate or Go Home, you know, it's about me being a failed missionary. And so one one thread I will always have to struggle with my whole life is this sort of savior complex. And that's mm-hmm. definitely how my journey began, and, and it still is a part of me. But, um, you know, when I, when I look at Jesus, when I look at the scriptures, right, we see this beautiful gospel of mutuality. Yeah. Um, and this idea that God is always working in these really surprising places. We will see Christ in these, you know, in the Beatitudes, right? Mm-hmm. In the poor, the meek, the sad. And so if I am on this journey of discipleship, then I actually need to invite that into my life. So it's mm-hmm. less about me living here to help right. people. Right. Or like, this is where my, my spiritual journey has taken me. But of course, I struggle with judgment. It's been a huge issue my whole life. But I will say, so writing is just something that came out of nowhere for me in my mm-hmm. life. And writing is what helps me learn to... Um, just sit with questions for. So I want curiosity in my life and mm-hmm. I want to uh, practice lament. So hopefully, mm-hmm. and not hopefully, I know mm-hmm. this is true. When people read some of my writings, they're like, you're a huge Debbie Downer, which is true. <laughs> one of the ways that I'm just like dealing with right. uh, these inequalities and, and these things that I was not born into. And so now I'm learning later in life. And I just sort of try to reclaim that ancient Christian practice of saying, mm-hmm. I'm sad. God, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Why is it so messed up? I'm mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's another huge theme of our writing. I try and be curious and I try and be like honest about how sad I am. You think that's good. That's a good gift to give to people. I like you got to get better at that because I, I think you can sometimes look at some of these systemic issues and be like, well, how do we fix it? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, that's not 
our job. To, right. I mean, it is our job in a sense, but again, going back to like a scriptural framework, you would say those who have been most oppressed, you know, are going to be the ones who show us a new way forward. But also like if we don't sit and lament, I, I don't think we're going yeah. to have like the spiritual imagination even mm-hmm. consider something new. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And America has a little bit of a hard time with, um, yeah. <laughs> it makes us, uh, actually wrestle with what we've done wrong. Which yeah. Is hard for a lot of us. Yeah. And I wonder if we're like on the world scene, such a relatively young country too, that it's kind of like we're, maybe we're still like in the toddler phase, right? Or maybe the angsty adolescent phase. And we like, we haven't grown up to maturity and maybe, maybe some lament will, will help grow us. Maybe we're in the midst of a growing phase. That's yes. Yeah. About it. <laughs> One thing I, you said in your book that I, I starred and underlined was, um, you're talking about, you know, people with which you dis- disagree. And you said, you know, this someone that I didn't like was also my neighbor. And so the framework of neighborliness has allowed you to embrace the gun-toting right-wingers <laughs> and, you know, the progressive um, left-leaning gentrifiers. What is the cost of that spot? I think it's a really, really complicated question because... I don't actually have an answer because I think that we do live in a society that doesn't treat people equally. And I think that abusive behavior needs to be called out and right. accountable. Right. So I think some, sometimes you know, we can get into that, like, well, both sides have right. problems or whatever. Right. And I, I'm not saying that. I think what I was trying to say in the book is that I definitely, yeah, my neighborhood, right, is like mm-hmm. the United States. I have these amazing yep. immigrant refugee neighbors who I love. We have a few people who are gentrifying and they're sort of liberal and progressive. And then we have this historic sort of white flight neighborhood. Yeah. So elderly people, lots of people super into guns. We actually have Confederate flags in Portland, Oregon because racism, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. South, right? Yeah. It has to do with uh, trying to intimidate the influx of families of color and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all that going on. And, and it's scary and it's hard. And, and like, I have neighbors who are Muslim and where the, hijab and, and they've mm-hmm. been spit on and they don't feel safe and they don't really walk they don't feel safe to walk around you know all mm-hmm, this stuff mm-hmm. and so my priority is making a society where they feel safe it really mm-hmm. is at the mm-hmm. same time my neighbors who have fear in their hearts and and, and cling yeah. to guns and all this stuff they're also my neighbor what i'm just interested in talking about i think in my book is the fact that as much as i want to say like as someone who's really far right wing which i understand them because I have people like that, my family, that's my background. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones with hatred in their hearts and they're right. the ones, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, I have that in me because mm-hmm. <laughs> when I see someone, you know, with a gun in their truck, I think my first thought sometimes is like, my life would be so much easier if they just didn't exist. Right. And that is like wishing death on someone. And so, uh, you know, there's this, there's this poor I love named Patrick Otuma. Mm-hmm. He talks about like, these seeds of eradication that get yeah. sown in our hearts and how if we water them, they'll bloom and grow. And, and I just want to be honest and say, like, I have that within me. Mm-hmm. And it's my work to say, like, no, you can't wish that some people just cease to exist. Like, mm-hmm. this is the mm-hmm. actual neighborhood we have. So how do we actually prioritize the safety of the people who are truly most at risk? And I think that's what kind of is hard yeah. sometimes is, I think a lot of people in my neighborhood are afraid of things. Yeah. Who's here are we listening to? Right. Is a really good question. Yeah. 
Right. And I think, though, rehumanizing people with which you disagree about remembering, like, okay, we're all afraid is, yeah, and then just, is a good I, I spiritual still, practice. I still want to go one step farther and yeah, say, yeah. like, and who have we been listening to? Like, right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back in just a minute with the rest of my interview with D.L. Mayfield. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And here's the rest of our conversation. Tell us a little bit too, you, know, you talk a little bit about um, kind of stoking fires of holy imagination, about delight, just kind of this, you know, holding lament and delight and tension, which I love. Um, and I think it's super important right now with like all of these shutdowns and pandemic fears. What are maybe some of the ways in which you cultivate your hope? Like what practical things do you do to hold those two intention? The sadness, the delight, the work and the contemplation. Yeah, I think for me, I said that, you know, I am pretty good at lament or at least like being angsty and (laughs) yeah, I can, I can despair with the best of them. Um, but that can get like super self-focused and self-inward. Um, and so I do think, some practices of like joy and delight and celebration are really important. You know, for like ever since I started writing, I've been writing about confetti cupcakes because yeah. it's just like such a symbol for me of like here's this little bit of joy and sugar and amazingness. Um, my daughter like she likes to joke that you know my insides are made of frosting. Like I love <laughs> sugar. <laughs> you know, um, I love, like, I actually have a whole essay in my book about loving Disneyland. Yeah. It's really important to put it in there because, you know, so maybe if people have this perception of me that I was like, it's not, it's, I'm not a one note thing. Like, right, right. You can love Disneyland and also be despondent about the state of DACA at the same day. Like, right. this is how we actually live our lives. Right. Um, and so, and so I have actually been struggling, like everybody's been struggling during this pandemic um, because some of my ways of finding joy have now been taken from me. And I yeah. think that's true for a lot of us. But like, so for me, like hanging out with my neighbors, having meals in their apartments, can't do any of that. Um, and so I have to just sort of make it, smaller and, and find these other things. But for me, it's just been great for the past few years to reframe this idea of self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not something that we engage in to numb ourselves. We engage in to build resilience. Mm-hmm. So I think so many of us are now in that place where like okay, numbing 
doesn't actually help. Like, can you numb for an entire year? No. <laughs> um, so how do we build resilience? Because we want right. to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Fight for justice, right? Don't mm-hmm. We don't want to burn out. I mean, burnout hurts people. Yeah. Burnout hurts the, the, you know, people who are trying to help or whatever. Yeah. You just lay out. And I've seen that happen so often. And so what we want to do is we want to build a resilient So, You know, for me, it's been great to learn from, you know, specifically women of color who had to learn this for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, they're mm-hmm. awesome at expressing joy in very complicated yeah. situations. And so, and so learning just, yeah, what do I want? I want resiliency. I don't yeah. actually just want to numb out. Yeah, I know. That's so good. I love it. And it's so, it's like lots of quieter, smaller things, localized things. Um, what would you, what, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, oh, you know, I, I'm like waking up to this reality around me. The pandemic is kind of laid bare the problems of our nation world and my own heart. And, um, where do I start? You know, how do you begin or what steps did you do? Like when you moved into a new apartment complex building, like how did you get to know people? Like how did you begin to love your place and the people around you, even though you might not have had like an an immediate natural affinity? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe this is two questions for me. I was just like really into finding people who are different from me and mm-hmm. in a relationship with them. And I actually have made huge moves, right? I've like lived yeah. in these apartment complexes. I, yeah, I mean, we could just talk all day about this, but like, I literally did not hang out with people that were just like me Yeah, because that's easy, right? right. You have to work hard to be a relationship with other people. I also ended up getting my degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So that's my actual master's degree. I teach English classes. That's how I meet people, all this stuff. I would say right now, you know, we can't really do a lot of this intentional neighboring that has been what I've done for 15 years. Um, But it is this really amazing moment where we have access to social media. And Mm -hmm. I think that can be truly overwhelming. So you have to take this with a grain of salt. um, We have the chance to sit at the feet of people who Mm -hmm. know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. We have a chance to listen. And especially for someone like me, you know, I have some white saviorism. I have some white fragility. I get to, in the safety of my own home, like read some stuff on the computer, the Twitter that makes me be like, oh my gosh, what <laughs> yeah. is happening? Right. Yeah. I can process that and I can, and I can do that all without like spewing onto my neighbors or, right. or other people and, and hurting them. But just, you know, take this chance to learn and be challenged and mm-hmm. your reactions, notice your emotions, like mm-hmm. keep doing the work, keep digging. And I, that is not nothing. Right. I don't think social media is everything, but it is not nothing. Yeah. Especially if you have, if your life has sort of has been orchestrated to be very homogenous, then this is absolutely the next very first step. Yeah. And then you can start to think through what is my life going to look like, you know, as things start to open again, you know, mm-hmm. before all this happened, I, I just would tell people, look at your church, look at your school, look at where you grocery shop, look at the parks you play at, look at your neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, everybody look and, talk and act and think and eat like you, mm-hmm. well, then you need to change at least one of those things. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I know we can't do that now, but let's start by reading. Let's start by following different yeah. social media accounts. And I think it, it totally can change something. Yes. I like that. That's great. I love to hear just like, just at least start with changing one, right? You could, you yeah. we could, you could try a new grocery store. 
I guess that is an option now. Yeah, no, I like that. I was like, I can do that. I can do that. I cannot do the Albertsons down the street just because it's closest. You might have like a Mexican tienda. Mm -hmm. You might have an Asian grocery store. And both of those places have amazing things. But sometimes white people are like, oh, I can't go in there. You know, I know it sounds silly. um, No, I like it. I like it. I'm adding it to my to-do list. One other thing I would like you to just briefly touch on is you talk about the, these twin themes that are ebook of proximity and attention. And I'd love for you to kind of talk about how they're intertwined and why proximity isn't enough. Yeah, I think people talk about proximity a lot as a solution to like every problem. But, right. you know, we probably hear it the most in regards to like racism, right? It's yeah. like people just live next to each other, which is, interesting like we have black and white people living in the same cities but mm-hmm. they're segregated cities right. so yep. something's going on there there's some systems at work that are keeping people segregated and it's actually all been intentional you know you can even start to look into why and where freeways were built right yeah. and usually yep. they were built to keep black neighborhoods from encroaching into white neighborhoods right mm-hmm. all this stuff so much history to look into that um for me what i have sort of and then I sort of seen scholars talk about is this idea that if you have proximity but there's no change in power dynamics, it can actually lead to further violence or disaffection, right? right? It can mm-hmm. lead to more problems. And I think that's really the key here is that proximity without mutuality yeah. only makes things worse. And so mm-hmm. mutuality has become this this thing that I really strive for in my life. Mm-hmm. You have to work mm-hmm. really hard for it. Sometimes I think about even, you know, being an English teacher, right? how can I strive for mutuality in my classrooms? You really have to start to rethink things and mm-hmm. you can't just do it the way you always thought in order to create true reciprocal relationships because mm-hmm. those are the kind of relationships I want. Um, and they're the ones that have blessed me the most, right? And when you feel like there's a, there's a give and take, yeah. that's, that's what I'm looking for in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think without paying attention, you aren't ever going to see what the power dynamics are, mm-hmm. right? And you might be able to say like, we're on the same page here. But that for me is a really where paying attention kind of comes into play for me is seeing like who gets to uh, develop in my neighborhood, who gets to live in the new apartments, like mm-hmm. what parts of Portland get new parks. I, I don't know, like all these little things, I, I just kind of am using it almost as a spiritual discipline. Yeah. And God revealed to me what's going on in our city and how we can work together to work for mutuality and the mutual flourishing of all. But mm-hmm. It's hard. Once you start to pay attention, you realize, Oh my gosh, my city is not set up that way. Right. Our economic system is not set up that way. Our real mm-hmm. estate system is not set up that way. The school system is not set up that way. And, and it can get really overwhelming. Yeah. And that's why I'm just so glad I'm a Christian because if this was just me wanting to do this, mm. I would have heard that long ago. But I get to go back and be like, oh my gosh, this is a, this dream for mutual flourishing is not coming for me. This is yeah. God's dream. Yeah. But so many other people have this dream. Mm. Even though I'm a little tidy person and I can't do a lot, I'm a, at least a part of this vast ocean of people who also have God's dream for the world. And that just helps me. I mean, even as I'm telling you this, I'm feeling better about the world, even mm. though it totally sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah. God put this dream within us for a reason and he didn't put it just in me and that just helps me to keep moving keep paying attention and keep working towards mutuality Mm -hmm. this is god's dream for the world you know when you pray the lord's prayer 
It, it's so cool. You could just, I see people do this all the time. You could take your own neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. I would say in Rockwood as it is in heaven, yeah. right? We want God's will to be done here as it is in heaven. And, and that's what I'm going to keep working towards. Mm. Mm. Well, you've boosted my spirits, not in a saccharine way, but in a really good, earthy, <laughs> localized way. So thank you. Um, it's good. I think the kingdom of God, it seems like, right? It's either, it's like so big and vast and like transcends space and time and culture, but then it's also like so, so minute and particular. So I think that that gives me, you know, it's like our father in heaven, right? And it's us. It's a collective us. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm just waxing on right now, but um, it. <laughs> it it fuels like the very daily, ordinary showing up in your neighborhood kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a reason why the Bible talks so much about plants. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. you have to pay attention to the big picture systems, and then you also have to pay attention. Yeah. To the flowers, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's all learning how to hold these things in tension. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for helping us a little further on. Um, your book is really a wonderful and hopeful um, exercise. So, listeners, I do encourage you to go pick up a copy of Danielle's book, The Myth of the American Dream. But before we end, I would love to ask you your laundry routine kind of comes from it's like kind of my kathleen norris-esque question mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. what quotidian mysteries so mm-hmm. i would love to know what what's your laundry life look like okay i'm assuming you've asked dudes this right oh yeah mm-hmm. that's so awesome i gotta i gotta go back and just listen yeah. to all the responses but i um i was just thinking i knew you're gonna ask me this i'm like oh i just i just it's okay. We can do five loads and yeah. I listen to a podcast because nice. what did people do before podcasts? Like, I don't know. <laughs> in a meditative practice. It could be. Quotidian mystery. Right. But instead, I listen to podcasts <laughs> about like TV shows I watched 15 years ago. And yeah. that's what I do. And that's very spiritual. It's okay. It's maybe one of your practices of delight and that's important too. There we go. There's yes. Cool. You can put, work it in when you're talking about Dorothy Day and her duties of delight. Yours is yeah. podcast and laundry. Podcast and laundry, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. It's been so encouraging to have you on. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with D.L. Mayfield. She is a woman who lives close to the ground. She is localized in her neighborhood, and I hope that you'll take some of her wisdom to heart, especially if you pick up a copy of her book, The Myth of the American Dream, or her first book, Assimilate or Go Home. And I'd love to leave you with one small step. I know 2020 has been hard, and that's such an understatement uh, for many of us, and yet... We need some small anchoring points, things that hold us close to our neighborhoods, to our families, to our church communities, uh, and rather than kind of get getting spun out on all the issues and all the noise online, we need to be placed instead of displaced. And so I want you to consider what Danielle recommended to us was to look at 
a few areas of your life. Look at your church, look at your neighborhood, look at your school that your kids go to, look at the grocery stores you shop at, look at the places that you use your money, and look at the diversity question. Does everyone look like you? Do they act like you? Do they vote like you? Do they believe the same things as you? And to realize that part of our calling as Christians is not necessarily towards sameness, but for the shalom, the wholeness, and the peace, and the contentment that God reconciles himself to us through the blood of Jesus's cross. But it looks really practical. It looks as small as where you shop. So look at some of those things. Ask yourself some, a few hard questions. Does everyone look and think exactly like me? And consider, if that's the case, choose one thing this week that you could do where someone might not look or act or believe the same things as you. And that helps us begin to learn other people's stories. It humanizes someone that looks different, and it begins to cultivate into us an empathetic imagination. And I think that's really where the seeds of the kingdom of God grow, through difference, not through homogeny. So let me know how it goes. Go ahead and tag me on social media at AAHales. Tag Danielle at DL Mayfield on social media as well, because we need conversations. We need good food for thought. Be sure to right now, go ahead and share this episode with a friend. Tell all your friends. You guys, season four is so great. We have some wonderful guests in store for you. We have Erwin Ince, who is an African-American pastor in Washington, D.C. Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville. We have women talking about immigration and what does it mean to be a woman right now. There are so many good conversations. I can't wait to share them with you, even conversations as we get nearer to the election. So, Subscribe right now to the Finding Holy Podcast, share an episode with a friend, and remember, friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.